Are you ready to control your master? Hello, everyone. I'm Charlie. Welcome back to Turntables and Tea. I'm Corey. And this week, we have a special guest with us. Please introduce yourself, sir. Hey, guys. I'm Justin. Um, just a little bit of a Metallica super fan, so I made sure I hopped on this episode for you guys. Drop some knowledge for everyone on the greatest album I think that's ever been made. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the hot, the first IT take right off the bat. I love it. All right. Yes. All right. Got to start strong, right? <laughs> yes. Definitely glad to have you here. I have to say this one's a bit out of my comfort zone. I wouldn't call myself a metalhead. Usually the heaviest I do is like ACDC. So this is a little different for me. But like we said, we want to learn new things and become better listeners. So that's why we're here to do Master of Puppets and... It's relevant to this year, thanks to a show called Stranger Things and a guy named Eddie Munson. So it's a perfect time to revisit Master of Puppets. And uh, yep, there's a lot to unpack here. So I'm excited to have a fan with us to give us some context, hopefully. <laughs> Most definitely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a Metallica lover, but as far as a super fan, not a super fan. I'm I'm super excited to have the pearls of knowledge dropped on us tonight by you, Just. So let it, let us know. Give us spill that tea, as we say. Spill that tea. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm ready. It, as Charlie knows, when someone brings up Metallica, I can go on for hours and hours. So put me on a podcast to talk about that. That's like a dream come true. If only you guys could see my Master Puppet shirt and my Metallica tattoo, but we won't bless you with my beautiful face today, unfortunately. We'll put pictures of it up on the Facebook and the uh, Instagram. Perfect. There we I go. Like it. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll need it because this one was a bit different to post on social media because its album campaign was so different for this era. Yeah. So for those who don't know, this album was released in 1986. And at that point, obviously, we're at peak MTV era. The past two albums we discussed on this show were peak MTV era albums done by arguably the king and queen of MTV, Michael Jackson and Madonna. And now we're going with a band that at this point in time had nothing to do with MTV because they weren't going to get played on it. This is not the pop sound of 1986. And so... They did things differently. They were a bit of an underground band still at this point. And funnily enough, I look up, they got big during this era because they went on tour with none other than Ozzy Osbourne. And you know, really? when you're touring with someone like Ozzy like that, you're bringing the fans out to see Ozzy. And then, you know, Metallica's coming out, just, you know, banging the strings like they are on this album. I mean, this album starts off killer immediately. Then you start turning some heads and people think, you know, I maybe have heard of these guys, you know, back in that day. but maybe a little scared or apprehensive to hear them. And then this was the album that really brought the bridge from the underground to the mainstream, you know, through this album. And when you look through its numbers and its success, like definitely proves that definitely broke the mold of thrash metal really kickstarted that whole, that whole genre, in my opinion. Oh, most definitely kickstarted that genre. This is the third studio album, right? Yeah. Second. And, and this was, were they on tour with, Osborne after they released this or before they released this? This was after they released it. This came out, like Charlie said, this was March in 1986, and they were touring through the summer. Uh, this is the very unfortunate tour for this great album when the great bassist Cliff Burton died in that bus accident in Sweden. I believe that was the night of September 26th, so I think it was actually the 27th after midnight. 
ended up cutting this tour short kind of adds to like the mythical aura of this album and the tour in itself, which in odd ways, you know, goes with the album, but it was definitely a sad time for that band. Then hurt that tour definitely hurt Ozzy, you know, cause they stopped touring after that, but it was after the album came out. Yeah. They missed the whole, the whole European leg of the tour and came home and auditioned a new bass player, which <laughs> I couldn't even imagine, especially not after recording an album like this. And of course, we're going to break it down. But this album for them was the most dialed in album they had done. Um, There was even talks about Getty Lee producing this album that didn't come to fruition. But they were on a mission to make this beautiful album. In fact, and I got to look through my notes, but I'm almost positive they started recording in America or knew the recording conditions in America. And they were like, no way. And ended up recording overseas on this, right? Yeah. So it was actually funny. Their very first album, Kill Em All, which came out in 1983, they recorded over in San Francisco, which is where they really got their big break. So then when they went to record Ride the Lightning, which is only nine months later in 1984, they were at a studio. And this one, I believe, was somewhere in Scotland. And they really liked the sound of that studio. A um, little more how they were, those producers were a lot more serious about getting this music perfect. So they really liked that idea of it and stayed over there and to do this album. Whereas Master Puppets was actually recorded in uh, the Sweet Silent Studios in Denmark. Okay. So, you know, seeing from a, a bunch of kids at, at this age, they were only, I believe, like 21, 22. And Cliff Burton, the bassist, was a few years older. I think he was 24 because that was when he died. Um, you got you got these kids coming overseas to record this giant album, and it kind of proved just how much they were about the music, which in that time you had some great bands, but were they so much about the music as about the partying and that lifestyle as Metallica was? No, they were about that music, making it sound good, get that out and get on tour, you know, and that kind of thing, doing that overseas, spending all that money, definitely spent a lot more to do it there than they would have here in the U.S. Shows how serious they were with this album. Yeah, on top of that, I mean, for them, they had they already came with that that knowledge that people knew they were coming in there to party and for them to record this album sober says leaps and bounds about what they were doing and i right. can't even imagine how focused they were to get it done on top of that so they could drink a beer you know what i'm saying right this is a band known as alcoholica actually because of their <laughs> drinking right. I, I mean, that's relevant all the way up until these last couple of years with some of the struggles with their band members and their front man, James Hetfield. But that showed back then the dedication they did have, you know, and in here, my notes, I see when they recorded this album as, as amazing. This album sounds they did not take too long on it. September 1st to December 27th. That's not too long to record an album of this stature, you know, so they did a really good job just cranking down, writing that music. As you know, every album has a whole B-side, which this album has a decent bit. So they did a really good job finding the right way they wanted to do the album, top to bottom. Um, if you've ever listened to Ride the Lightning as well, this album structured very similarly. Eight yep. tracks. Title track is arguably the best song. Usually the longest is right there at number two. Has a really good instrumental on both of them. So, you know, they knew what they were doing with this album. They were ready to record it so that way they could get on tour with it. You know, they were about the music, especially on this album, more than any of their 10 studio albums thus far. And counting is apparently we're getting a new one soon. Hopefully that'll happen. Wow, that would be amazing. I You might not know this about me, but I something I love about breaking down these albums and, and learning about them. I'm a stickler about the way these albums are put together track wise. And we'll talk about this, but this one, you're right. It was it was structured 
to a T like Ride the Lightning, but I'm not going to do any spoilers here, but the, the, the structuring on this album is, uh, is something we'll definitely talk about tonight. Yeah. One thing I found most interesting about this album that was so different from everything else that was being produced in the 80s is this album has no synthesizers on it. Yeah. And uh, that actually in the long run helped this album because it has a more timeless quality. I feel like this month with the exception of Rock a Little by Stevie Nicks, we picked the most timeless sounding 80s albums, I think. Because yeah. you can obviously still put this on the radio today and it can be a hit because, well, we saw that this year with the title track becoming a hit technically for the first time. So on that note, with this album, like I said, they weren't going to be an MTV band. No videos were made for any of the songs on the album. And they released one single four months after the album was released, which is a long time to wait. Definitely not the norm. And that single was the title track. But okay. through touring and word of mouth, the band got big. The album peaked at 29 on the Billboard 200, spent 72 weeks on the charts, and was certified gold in its initial run, which broke records for a fresh metal album and band. However, this band got a lot bigger in the years afterwards, especially in the early 90s, and... In 2003, this album was certified six times platinum by the RIAA. And uh, as of 2016, it had sold over four and a half million copies in the U.S. just since 1991. So this is an album that in many ways got bigger after its initial release. I think one of the biggest accolades of this album as well, in my opinion, was in 2015, it was selected yep. by the Library of Congress um, to be the first one preserved. And quote unquote for being culturally historically and aesthetically significant which is is mind-blowing and and kudos to them for that yeah Corey, that's funny because that's actually the next thing i was thinking about being sected in the library of congress and you know when you really sit there and think about it that is huge just for an album like this at that time just to get any publicity in general but yet to become such an important album in the fabric of music you know in general really goes to show the work that was put into it and how well it really was done and it's interesting because me and charlie were talking about that the other day how after they came out their black album 91 which is really their by far their biggest album we know that's one of the biggest albums of all time but that shows how good this master puppets album was that what is that five years later after yeah. that album had come out for it to still be relevant and almost in some ways more relevant than what was then their current albums at that time really goes to show the power that this album had on people you know, there's not a single kid that you will ever meet who picks up a guitar and doesn't try and learn Master Puppets within the first couple months. That's a that's a staple, you know, talking about the Stranger Things with uh, Eddie Munson when he played this song on Stranger Things. The yep. actual actor, Joseph Quinn, had said that when he had first started playing guitar, which is really cool, he was actually playing the recording track for this song that was played on the episode. It was one of the first songs he ever tried to learn when he was younger and it took him a decent amount of time to pick up that track as James Hetfield and Kirk Hammond on those guitars are not your average players. That's for sure. Yeah. No, you talk about hard work too. And, and the musicality on this, you know, Lars was taking lessons before this and during this and uh, Hammett was working with Joe Satriani of all people, not yep. only to, to learn how to record more proficiently, but you know, 
I have goosebumps right now to picture Hammett and Satriani sitting together uh, is, is mind blowing to me. Uh, so something that, you know, speaking to that hard work, there it is. Yes. And uh, with all that being said, I'm ready to actually dive into this album and talk about all the hard work that went into each song. I'm very excited to do that. So with that being said, I think we are ready to dive right into master of puppets. I'm ready. The album begins with a song called Battery. And uh, this is an interesting song. It starts off as an acoustic song. You think it's going to be a ballad. Then it erupts into this really fast tune and it's aggressive sounding. But the lyrics are actually anti-violence, which I find very interesting. And the most mind-blowing thing I found out about this song was that James Hetfield improvised the riff while he was vacationing in London. Yeah, that that rhythm riff, that's that's wild to think. I mean, this song comes in with that acoustic intro, super reminiscent of the style, like we said before, of, of Ride the Lightning. Uh, and then, I mean, it's it, I'm taking this straight out of the wiki, but I think this is the most perfect way to say it. It builds up and, you know, joined by the multi-track layers uh, until it's joined by a sonic wall of distorted electric guitars. And, and that is a in my opinion, the perfect way to say how this song hits right after that acoustic beautifulness. Yeah, it's definitely a, a great way to start an album. You know, and in this album alone, Metallica has done that a few times with that soft acoustic intro. And then you think it might be a you're thinking it's going to be a fade to black. If this is the first time you heard it, you might turn it up a little bit. The next thing you know, your eardrums are gone when that riff kicks in and James and Lars and Kirk and Cliff all come in on that first beat. It'll blow your skin off of your face, but in the best way possible. I think there was really no better way that they could have started this album. You could have moved any of these eight songs to this first spot and in no way would have had the effect that it had with Battery being that first song. You know, definitely was the when you were speaking on the way that this album was constructed, that was absolutely the best first track that they could have done, you know, for it really tells you what you're about to get with the next 54 minutes of this album. After you hear that opening riff, which still to this day, it's one of their most played live songs. And it is by far that rhythm riff is one of the best that James has ever come up with. And we know him as a riff master yeah. so to rank any of his riffs up at the top. You know, that's saying something. And while he's probably half drunk in London to come up with that, I think makes it even more impressive in itself. I yeah. know. I listened to this album for the first time this year. Like I said, not a Metallica super fan, pretty unfamiliar with them, but I was shocked to hear it go into that, even though I knew I'd be listening to a heavy metal album. It just wasn't quite what I was expecting. We go back to the the face melting and, and the power of this at uh, three minutes and 20 seconds on the first track, we hear Hammett solo for the first time on this album. And he's showing his prowess and his power already on this album at three minutes and 20 seconds. And you said it very awesomely. You know, it sets the tone for the rest of this album and what you're going to hear. It's not going to falter and yeah. it, it, it's not going to stop. So hold on, because here we go. <laughs> yeah, and Charlie, it's funny what you're saying when you're talking about the lyrics with this song specifically, and it surprised you that it's anti-violence. There's this weird misconception with metal where the lyrics don't matter or they're they're odd and they're dark. If you really sit down, take away the music, take away the guitars, the drums and all that, and look at what James Hetfield was writing, especially at that time, it, it was 20 or 21 years old, really had a power with his words. And the cool thing with this album, it, especially in this time, a lot of albums are more themed. A lot of the songs have a common theme coming 
between all of them where this album's really big on the manipulation on a person of from many different things. Whereas this song Battery is ultimately about the manipulation, how your anger can control your your anger and emotion control your actions. So really what this song is about is not letting that battery of emotions turn you into an angry guy lashing out. As you can hear in the chorus, the lashing out, the reaction, it's a really good way of saying something like that. And especially at that time, I think those lyrics were overlooked. Whereas nowadays you can go on YouTube, even on Spotify, scroll down to the bottom under the song and it'll show you those lyrics. I think that's a big part of this song, especially this album, but this song in particular that gets overlooked is that lyrical powers of what James Hetfield was able to say to you while he's down picking some 200 beat per minute riff that any good guitarist will struggle with at the same time while he is dropping these really deep lyrics on you, you know, I think is another good indication of what that album brings to you. And that starts right off the bat, like we said. Yeah. And I have to say, this one is a bit more of a easy to misconstrue thing because a couple of the other songs later on the album, I feel the message is pretty overt, even with the aggressive music. It's pretty overt what they're trying to say. This one's not as much so, but I think that's a smart construction on their part. They didn't lose any tough credibility by writing an anti-violence tune. So I think this is an impressive track and a good start to the album. I'm misquoting someone, but I was reading them say at this point in their career, they were not writing songs. They were telling stories. And yes, and that is summed up right here. And I think it's a big thing when when you look at a band like this, the lyrics that they're writing, the emotion and the story that they're portraying in their songs is really coming from a lot of the band members themselves. And if you're a big Metallica fan like me, or you're interested in this band, you definitely want to research the story of James Hetfield, their lead singer and rhythm guitarist, one of the best front men in metal history, honestly, one of the bestest in general. But this song, I think, really is the best embodiment of him himself. He grew up a, you know, quiet, shy kid out there in L.A. His dad got up, left the family when he was young. You know, he went to work at a young age, working at a sticker factory, I think age 14 or 15, you know, really putting in those hours. His mom got sick with cancer. She was really religious back then, refused treatment. Um, that actually comes into play in a later Metallica album with the really, really popular song. But you had this young kid that just had all this anger and angst inside of him, but didn't know how to you know, bring it out of him. And I think this song, as he grew up, is a really good portrayal of how he learned not to let that emotion control him. And it's kind of his way of telling his story about that. And the really cool thing that metal does, which is big on symbolism, where he's not doing this I, I, I thing, it's all about like a outside, you know, factor that you, you wouldn't think it's really like him singing about himself when you really dig into it and there's lyrics and the story of him. It's really like a uh, autobiography of his own that he never comes out and says it is, you know. But uh, speaking of all that symbolism, I think now's a perfect time to move on to the next track, which is chock full of symbolism. So yay for symbolism. <laughs> and uh, this is a pretty cool example of it. I think it is that famous title track, Master of Puppets. And uh, this could mean many different things, actually. When you listen to the song, you can interpret it many different ways, which I think is awesome. But the basis of it is drug addiction. That's what the song's about. And again, really against the grain of 1986. Uh, we are definitely still in that sex, drugs, and rock and roll era, especially right. with the hair metal bands of this time. They were glamorizing that lifestyle but metallica's here saying by the way it's pretty ugly there's no denying that 
this song doesn't make it sound fun. It says, no, it's controlling you. And uh, it does. I think it was really gutsy of them to go against the grain on this one. And Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, this was the only single from the album. And uh, wasn't a hit then. But sure enough, this year, thanks to Stranger Things, it made it up to number 35 on the Hot 100. So... Master of Puppets, a top 40 hit 36 years later. How crazy is that? I think that's simply incredible. And when you're talking about how this song can really be interpreted in many different ways, you know, I don't want to spoil the show. I I know me and you, Charlie, watch it. I don't know if you watch that show, Corey. I finally got Charlie to watch it once the season four came out. He blew through all four seasons. So then with this song, as we know, it's really about the drug addiction and the way it can manipulate you and all that. Then when you look at that episode... And the scene where the song is being played. Now, obviously, it's cut up into bits and pieces of the song. It plays a lot of the chorus and the verse and then part of the solo. Because you're not going to put a nearly nine-minute song into a TV episode. That's almost, you know, that's like a 20% of that episode by itself. But when that main villain, Vecna, is running around chasing these kids, you can see how these lyrics just speak on many different things. As we know, it's about drug addiction. When you're watching this episode, you see how perfectly those lyrics fit about something chasing you down controlling you you know holding you down taking the life from you i thought it was the absolute perfect song to put in that scenario and just the openness of these lyrics and how well they were written you know is the reason why i was able to do that you know to use any song to convey a strong feeling always speaks to that song but this one even before stranger things as it's on its own is a super powerful song uh, on top of that, so much homage paid. I mean, that Flying V was one of the guitars that Hammett recorded this album on, right. uh, the the Gibson, you know. And and to have that in Stranger Things was a cool homage paid. Here we go again at 3.35, one of my favorite sections in any song period of all time. When you get to that beauty out of this heaviness, it just speaks and shows their versatility as musicians, as composers, and what they were doing on this album. I like I literally sing and whistle that section mm-hmm. almost like twice, three times a week. Always have. You know? It's good to know I'm not the only one then. <laughs> yeah. But interestingly, the single edit of the song cuts off at that point. Really? Yeah. Well, Oh, get out of here. That's so sad. I mean, I think it's the best part of the song, personally, other than one riff, that one thing, it's like a eight measure riff in between the two solos. I think it's one of the most killer Metallica riffs. And it's great because you only get so much of it. You know, it's not that extended riff through every verse. But I think that melodic section really, really shows the power, especially because that is James solo. Normally, when you think Metallica solos, you're thinking Kirk Hammett up there shredding. You might even think Dave Mustaine back in the day writing some of those early solos. Yep. Here you have James Hetfield putting this distorted sound on a guitar that not many people had really heard before. While you have Cliff Burton underneath essentially going Mozart on a five string. Yep. You know, and the way that it, it it molds together in the harmonies, which is a huge thing Cliff Burton was into. He used to walk around with his bass guitar. He had the four string, the five string. He'd walk around with a little ukulele and a regular six string guitar. So that way, when he's writing his bass parts, he can know what the harmonies are on the regular guitar. Then, therefore, when you get someone like James Hetfield, who's almost just as harmonic and musically talented as Cliff, 
and you put them together for a section like that, you know, I think it's incredible. And I think it goes really well with the point of that song as well. You know, you got your drugs, you got your high, you're, you're up, you're going, you're fast. And then you get this laid back, you know, this sullen down part. And then the way that it'll go right into the solo after that, like right back into that high, that adrenaline feeling. I think really they did a really, really good job, you know, with that part. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. The only somewhat negative thing I can say is because this song is so ubiquitous now, it's kind of easy to forget the musicality at times of it all. I mean, like we said earlier, every kid uh, who wants to play guitar tries this song in that regard. I would say this is probably like the stairway or free bird of the 80s in that regard. And those are also songs that have become so ubiquitous that we can't really look at them objectively or musically anymore. But when you really break it down, it's impressive what they did. More so Zeppelin than Skinner, I would say. They're more right. of virtuosos, but it's still hard to see it. So it's nice to break it down and see what was really done at the time, even if it's hard to see it now because the song is 36 years old and most people have heard it many, many times. Yeah, I, I'd agree there. We go back to that playing, you know, growing up playing guitar. I was so happy you said it, and, and I almost left. But I wrote it like four different times in my notes throughout the set. I'm like, tried to play this lick a million times. Worked two months trying to play this lick. The harmonics yep. <laughs> later on is like one of the easiest things you could do as as a young kid playing guitar. But then you literally are feeling like you're playing Metallica. Um, so, yeah, that, that speaks. And, and it still does this day, you know. Yeah, even even so today, if you pick up a guitar, you're going to you're going to try and play that riff. You're going to try and downpick that nasty, fast riff and makes you realize how talented they were, that James could be up there shredding this riff while he's singing these lyrics, too. Yeah. You know, I think it's really impressive. I remember one day I found out about Metallica from a Guitar Hero 3, actually. Now, it was the song one was on one of the set lists at the end of the game. Just absolute killer solo. It was a perfect Guitar Hero song. But then it was shortly after that I heard Master Puppets on the radio one time on 98 Rock, huge, you know, radio station here in Baltimore. And it's it's crazy because you're listening to this song. And it's just not like anything else you hear them playing on that radio at the time. You know, this is probably around 2007, 2008. I mean, this song is the length of three any of any other three radio songs put together. You yeah. know, and at that time, that was somewhat of a big downfall for them as if you look it up you can see james hetfield coming out and saying a big reason for their later albums starting with that black album in 91 really shortening the songs was you'd have these people out in the stands or in the crowd you know kind of arms crossed standing there six minutes into the song whereas nowadays as charlie was saying this song has become so famous it's the easiest eight and a half minutes you can listen to yeah. you know but at that yeah. time that was such a crazy thing to be able to do really come up with these ideas and keep the song going that that's why a lot of times you hear them play it live now they'll cut out a verse or two and it kind of shortens the song they just skip out one of those verses in between the chorus and kind of shorten it down a little bit which i personally i want to hear that extended verse. i want to hear every single bit that they wrote but it it does make sense to an extent and now at this point you know they're definitely getting up there in age i mean they're in great shape don't get me wrong but you can see where that that comes from and this is by far the longest song on this album so you can see somehow where that problem was able to uh, to occur for them. Didn't they just play a big festi? They, like Bonnaroo or something big? Something maybe, like that. It was I'm one wrong. of those. Maybe like, I'm wrong. They just not longer one of the metal festivals. And when they do something like that, they're the the Dundada of it. You know, the, everyone's there to see Metallica. And then 
there's some other bands behind you. And that was one they haven't toured a lot recently, of course, with the COVID. They all live in separate states. So it's not like they're all, you know, right next to each other, ready to get up and go. So when you could finally get back and hear Master of Puppets coming straight from them, you know, it's something. When I heard that song live for the first time, 2017 M&T Bank here in Baltimore, absolutely mind-blowing. I heard that song a million times beforehand, and it was like I was hearing it for the first time all over again, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, sure, it was uh, quite epic. <laughs> and uh, But now after that, we've been going on about that song for a while. We could probably do a whole episode just about the song, Master of Puppets, just like last week with Like a Prayer. Yeah, oh, I agree. But uh, unfortunately, we have to move on. So <laughs> track number three, kind of in a similar position to the past couple albums we did. Um, track three is The Thing That Should Not Be. This song has an interesting backstory, I found. It's actually inspired by the Chitulu mythos created by H.P. Lovecraft. I hope yep. I pronounced that correctly. And uh, this is another interesting thing of the past. You heard a lot more songs influenced by books back in those days. Not quite as many now because everyone's influenced by the musicians who made the songs about books at this point. I think this song keeps the album going just fine. I think it's interesting that it was inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. But I think kind of like an issue we have with the last two albums, it's a bit of a come down after the first two tracks. It's definitely the filler of side one of the album, I'm afraid. I have to agree with you there. I didn't remember this right off the bat from old listening of this album. But something I do love is one, I didn't know the Cthulhu stuff. I, I and I thought that was awesome because if you you picture if if what I if I, what I read was taken correctly, it's almost like a giant Cthulhu uh sea monster getting back into the sea. And I, I was thinking the Loch Ness monster sometimes. The, yeah, something like that. I love the trickiness of the musicality of this track once I start to picture this lumbering beast uh, going back to its slumber, to its its safe spot. But yeah, uh, I have to agree with you. A little bit of filler here or a little bit of a toned down, not necessarily something that's going to take me out of the album or out of the listening experience, but definitely a, a little bit down from, from where we came from. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree. It's definitely the... You know, the come down after those first few tracks, definitely good filler. But as you, you'll hear all three of us say a lot in this episode, especially me. The fact that this is their come down song and their filler and it's as good as it is, I think is simply incredible. Now, I believe this personally, and you'll hear a lot of Metallica fans say this. This is arguably their heaviest song. Some people think to be heavy, you got to just be churning that guitar string as fast as you can, like in Master Puppets. Which, that's simply not true. As we know, like in metal down tuning is a big thing. Tommy Iommi and Black Sabbath really made that famous with the lack of having five fingers. So we kind of, you know, had to start doing that. This is a song that is down tuned from standard E, which battery and massive puppets are in. So a lot of times when they're playing this song live, it's after a little break, you know, they can down tune to be able to play that live. But the way that that drops into the album and really you think, wow, Master puppets, that was a great song. That was so heavy. Then you just hear this churning heavy coming in on this song little slower paced i think it was a really good fill for the album and i think it is in a good spot you know and then the way that it really is inspired from hp lovecraft the thing with metallica that gets overlooked is how inspired they were by horror movies and books at that time their guitarist kirk hammett is a ginormous horror fan 
I mean, he played for years and years with a guitar with Rob Zombie on it and that kind of thing. A lot of their songs have come from books. Ride the Lightning actually was inspired from The Stand by Stephen King. He was reading while on tour for uh, Kill Em All and, he, you know, that kind of thing. So it's a it's a really cool song when you look at that, because you can look at it in the straight up way. It's some mythical sea Cthulhu monster, or you can really take that monster and kind of turn it into things in someone's life as it, the name of the track is that it should not be, you know, and I think that also goes to their musical prowess, how they're able to take one idea, but really write a song that could be interpreted as multiple different things while just being heavy and having a great riff in that song as well. So one of Cliff Burton's uh, best sounding songs, I think with the, his guitar tone being down tuned, I think it sounded really, really good between James and Cliff specifically. Definitely. I'm surrounded by so many horror nerds now. I've met so many just the past few years of my life. I never was surrounded by them growing up. And now that you've watched Stranger Things, you can consider yourself a horror nerd yourself. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that last season, at least, that last season kept me up. A little bit. I'm, I'm not even going to lie. It wasn't my favorite season. I'm not going to lie, actually, but still good, but... I don't know if we'll have to talk about Stranger Things again during this episode. I don't think it <laughs> parlays too much into the rest of this. Um, <laughs> but uh, the next song is actually also inspired by a book that is also a famous movie, albeit one I haven't seen that I heard was good. Welcome Home, parentheses, Sanitarium. This song was inspired by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And uh, this is a track for power ballad, something they're known for, kind of like more recent example, but Taylor Swift's track vibes being her emotional centerpiece. Metallica likes to have the power ballad at track four. Yep. I love when there's a pattern like that, but I think it's really interesting that this is obviously a song about mental health and somebody being locked up in a sanitarium. It's really interesting that a group of men did this because historically women are more likely to be at this point in time, at least, from what I understand, have been stigmatized for mental health. More women received lobotomies than men. It has been documented. So I kind of admire that they did this. Mental health in men is still a thing. There are certainly well-documented cases of it, but it also is overlooked a lot of times. It was pretty gutsy of them to do this in 1986, yep. especially. But uh this is definitely one of my favorites here. This is a cool song. I can't stress how much I love this song. <laughs> Thank you for saying uh, that. The the opening harmonics, again, I go back to something that everybody's played, but something that speaks to the naturalness of guitar, uh, in my opinion. And for me, the thing I love the most about this song is that the guitar starts to tell its story before we even hear Hatfield sing. So the guitar sings first in this, and I really love that, especially in, in the ballad sense here. And then that doubled up solo. That doubled up solo yeah. is so, so dirty. I think I'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that was like, ah, any musician would be like, ah, that's, come on now. I mean, it's it's up there. It's, oh, it's top yeah, of the anyone charts. anyone could have done that, you know. Yeah, right? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> You see, um, yeah, it's no. funny because when I first really started getting in Metallica, I was like I said, I heard one on Guitar Hero. That's one of the greatest songs ever. Then Master Puppets on the radio. This is one of the first songs I really got obsessed with this song in itself between the, the four instruments and, and the lyrics. And going back to what I said earlier about James Hetfield and, you know, his story of how it kind of pertained to the song Battery. This is another one that I think really goes really well with the emotion of him coming out with these lyrics. And again, is 
we know it's inspired by that movie. When you listen to these lyrics, this is a little more, you know, cut and dry than some of their other songs. Yeah. A l- little bit less symbolism, you know, than the rest. It's pretty obvious what they're singing about in this one, especially when they put the word sanitarium in the name, which I think is really interesting because they're saying welcome home. Yeah. As in talking about the sanitarium, how normal it is to have that kind of feeling. Um, I think this is one of the most emotional Metallica songs out there that and that's going up there with fade to black and the God that failed and all of that. You really get the feel of the angst coming out of James Hetfield and just all the instruments in general, not to mention when you, you you're talking about this as a power ballad, there's a special kind of power ballad when it's coming from Metallica, because they still got that breakdown in there after yeah. the solo where it's just churning and that riff really being led by the bass guitar, um, I think is absolutely killer, you know, and it really does a good job of showing the meaning of this song where it's it's a little slower and, and and softer, and then you get into this part. It's like you're losing your mind along with whoever it is that they're singing about. And it's like you're going insane with them. You know, when when you hear a good song, it's supposed to affect you in that kind of way. And there's very few Metallica songs, in my opinion, that do it as well as this one. And this is a fantastic song played live. It sounds all their songs sound really good live. Something about this one, it just plays very very well when they go up on a stage in front of tens of thousands of people. I uh, did want to note about the power ballad. It's not necessarily a power ballad in that traditional sense of the word. Like, I mean, there were quite a few huge ones in the years after this. This is not an every rose has its thorn or a love bites. It's its own beast. I mean, the more traditional Metallica power ballad would be nothing else matters. But right. that was a few years later and more reminiscent of a what they were trying to do in 1991. But this is a whole different thing from that. And I like Nothing Else Matters a lot, but I like this a lot too. It's a different kind of power bow than you're used to, but still really effective. Is this the end to our side one, vinyl Yes, it is. Yes. Think about that. Think about coming to the end of side one on Sanitarium. That's what I love. Now, Charlie knows he's a huge, you know, vinyl fan. I've gotten into that recently. The, and the reason being is I was in Vermont a few years ago, went into this little music store. This was shortly after Metallica had released their Master Puppets remastered box set. This, so what was this, 2018, I believe, 2019 maybe? I saw the Metallica Master Puppets remastered vinyl sitting there. I didn't own a record player. And I said, you know what? I'm going to grab that anyway. Now, I remember listening to this on the vinyl for the first time, an album I've heard a million times. And that's exactly what you said, Corey. You get to the end of that song, you know, you got to go flip that album. You sit there for a second, you go, wow. Yep. Like, it just sounded like that. After we're done talking about this song, it's a good segue into when you flip <laughs> you flip that record over, you just get punched in the mouth again with the next song. It's just a, such a good balance. And talk about the construction of the album between Welcome Home and then what will be the next song. It's just, I think, one of the best transitions Metallica has had between two songs, really, in any of their albums. You know, I'll but, go as far as to say out of the, and this is our 12th album, out of the 12 albums we've done, this might be, it's it's very close to the most solid side one out of all the albums we've done. I agree. As far and, as tempo and as far as power. Like, I, I, actually, I should say I'm judging this on the power of side one. This is raw churning power going straight through from, from one to, to four. If I were to sit down and, and find someone who's never heard of Metallica before, and I could pick four songs to say, this is what you get with Metallica, it would be those first four songs <laughs> in that exact order. I, 
Wouldn't really even have to think twice about that. I could definitely see that. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Now it is time for us to flip the album over and move on to side two, which begins with track five, another really angry social issue song, Disposable Heroes. This is a biography of a soldier, you could say, and uh, this is done in the middle of the Cold War. Again, a really interesting time for them to do a song like this, because these kinds of not necessarily this exact kind of anti-war protest song, but anti-war protest songs were very common about 15 years prior to this during the Vietnam era. But at this point, we're in a more pro-military point in American history. Reagan was president. And in fact, this year, a really popular war film was Platoon, the year after Full Metal Jacket was released. And I wouldn't say that these movies necessarily make war look fun, But it's still a movie, and in a way, you're still watching it for entertainment. Also in 1986, this is definitely not a war film, but Top Gun definitely glamorizes the military. Let's not kid ourselves here. So I wouldn't say this is an anti-military song, but it does show that a war is hell. So definitely going against the grain of the American consensus of 1986. This album wasn't recorded in America, but these men are all from America. I just kind of love how James Hetfield creates these different characters to espouse his own views. I think that's really unique of him. And it allows you to, I guess, separate the art from the artist because some artists with their opinions, they really don't know how to separate it from their music. First one I'm thinking of is John Lennon. It's pretty hard not to with that. And that's why people are like, oh, imagine, like kind of like that. But with this, it's much more separated. And uh, I think that's really interesting of him to do. And here's another fun fact. When I looked up James Hetfield, according to his Wikipedia page, he is from Downey, California, And uh, that is the same town that Richard and Karen Carpenter, a.k.a. the Carpenters, are from, which talk about different genres of music there. (laughs) But I think that's cool as shit, honestly, that he's from the same town as the frickin' Carpenters. Yeah. You see, with this this song, it's really interesting, because first few thoughts with that, first off, Full Metal Jacket, Top Gun, amazing movies. Metallica are not, they're great movies. With this song, I'll say it, James Hetfield had some balls to write this and put this out to the public with what was being said. And Charlie, you said it really well about separating the art from the artist. We know at this time that thrash metal was really, really big on political commentary, um, really for what it's worth, anti-politics, anti-government, a lot of things that come with that, you know, war, that kind of thing. As you say, thrash metal is about drinking beer, playing fast and saying F you to the government, essentially. And this is a really good embodiment of the way Metallica did that in the symbolism. You know, and when you said about creating these characters, he does so well. When you, you think of some of these lyrics, when James says, soldier boy made of clay, now an empty shell, 21 only son, 
that kind of thing. You, you really get this image of this kid that, you know, was drafted into a war he did not want to be in, which is the main premise of this the manipulation of a draft system to these young kids. To the name of the song, The Disposable Hero, I mean, you think exactly what it means. You, you take this kid, you just fall for you like, cool, thank you. Goodbye. Where's the next one? And I think that's really interesting because I was watching a YouTube video one time of James Hetfield talking about this song in particular. And this also goes to show how symbolism works. Sometimes it's not as serious as it comes across where he got the idea. The name for this song was he's out there in L.A. He was a Raiders fan. Then he's watching the game being commentated by two of the best commentators ever, John Madden, Pat Summerall. And they made a comment about a player who had just gotten injured in that game and was replaced by another player. And they called him a disposable hero. And, you know, James personally, so he thought that was a really interesting way to describe someone in that situation. Wow. And he, you know, he carried that over to this song talking about a kid being drafted and doesn't really come across what war he could be drafting. We think Vietnam War when we hear the draft automatically doesn't necessarily mean that's what that is about. But I thought that was a really cool thing to hear coming from, the, you know, the person who wrote it himself how he took a term being described for one thing and can symbolize it to mean something else. And it means the same thing across, across both. And then of course, as a football fan myself to hear my favorite musician talk about football, I'm like, that's awesome (laughs) shit. Anyway, you know, that just made me happy in itself, but I think that's a really good piece into the mind of the way or into the mind of James Heffield and the way he looked at the way he wrote his music, you know, and I don't think really many people would know that his idea from this came from a, a, Las Vegas or Las Vegas back then Los <laughs> Angeles Raiders game, you know? So I thought that was always really cool about this song. And this is always one of my favorite, this song kicks your butt from the beginning to the end. This is such a, a great song. This is a song when I'm playing the bass, I won't even attempt. I'm not even going to embarrass myself in private that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 220 beats per minute right off the cut into the second side. We talked a lot about Hetfield and and how he used uh you know these great story elements from war but I actually read going through this album that Hammett at the end of each verse is Hammett's interpretation of the music that he was hearing in different war films. Uh, and I went back mm. and listened and was like, wow, that's that's amazing. So the whole band really telling the story together. Again, we go back to they're not writing songs, they're telling stories. And, and they showed it again on the first track of the second side. I didn't know about that about Kirk. That, make, that makes sense. So his influence as he was about his media, his movies and his books Kirk. and all that, you know, that makes sense. And like I was saying, now you flipped that album over after welcome home and you're like damn you think you get a break and this song this song kicks off immediately like if you're listening to the vinyl you got to sit there and really find the edge of that record so you don't even miss that first beat because it starts literally the second that needle touches that record and this song does not let up to the end of that song it's i think it's one of their best works all eight of these songs are some of their best work but disposable here is itself really really is one of those songs that you hear afterward and you're like turn the radio back down and sit for a second i need to take a break after that one you know that just kicked me in the butt but of course the album doesn't really allow us to take a break now does it because we go from mental health to war and now we're on to religion with track number six leper messiah and this isn't just about religion in general it's about a specifically 80s phenomenon which i love It's specifically about televangelists who were really popular in the 80s and uh, 
the band is basically saying that, well, you people watching these shows, you're all just sheep to these folks. But really, it's all about money, which it always has been. I mean, I remember I wasn't around in the 80s, of course. But when I was a kid, I remember my mom used to watch like Joel Osteen. And same. And I always thought, even as a kid, I thought this guy is such a phony baloney. It's all about money. And I mean, part of that was probably me wanting to rebel against mom because it's like, oh, church, yuck. Like, I mean, I'm not really yuck about church, but as a kid, of course, I wanted to be that way. But even then, I could tell this guy is such a phony baloney. And I think my mom eventually saw, oh, these people are all about money, which, yeah, of course they are. But in the 80s, it's really interesting because televangelism was so much bigger then. And, uh, it's funny how this song came out not long before two major scandals involving televangelists. So, the first being in 1987, one big televangelist was named Jim Baker, lovely guy. He was revealed to have paid off a secretary in 1987. This woman was named Jessica Hahn, and he paid her off because she accused him of drugging and raping her. Because of this payoff, he was convicted of fraud and went to jail for a few years, though apparently he's still practicing ministry. I don't know why, but he is. But yeah, real winner there. And then two years after this song in 1988, a guy named Jimmy Swaggart, who was also really popular, got busted with a prostitute. So this song was highlighting that, hey, these people are hypocrites, these people you're listening to. Before the whole world found out for sure that they were hypocrites, but apparently they still have their followers. So unfortunately, this song is still really relevant. And uh, one interesting thing about it is the title actually comes from the lyrics of Ziggy Stardust by David Bowie, which I thought was pretty cool, too. Yeah, I remember Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, and you guys might not, but there was this iconic image of Tammy Faye like with mascara running down her face crying when all that was going down and it's the image that I see whenever I listen to this song um this song has a crescendo build that is almost like this dirty crescendo build that ends in this chromatic like falling downstairs musically this chromatic fall and I I just hope that this is this foreshadowing of what they see at, um, with these TV evangelists, these that they're building and building and building and ultimately they're going to fall. Um, so I always thought that that was unique about this song and, and, and a, a great way to tell that story. Jim Baker is a piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, this song on this album, again, it, it fits the album so well album all about manipulation of some kind yes i think this song is really cool though because we've spoken about these first five it's a lot of symbolism is it in these songs and dude in this song you, you know exactly what you're getting james hetfield was coming out and tell you exactly how he feels about this straight down to the name of the song which you mentioned is taken out from lyrics of another song but leper messiah literally means the fake messiah i mean they're coming out and telling you how just you know bullshit this is from the start you know you talk about the Image here, what you think when you hear that song. I always think when you're sitting there in church after you just, you know, as a young kid, really weren't listening to anything that was going on, and you're watching this collection basket go around and all these people are just putting their head down and dropping this money in there. And I'm thinking to my head, you know, what what 
what good does that do? And what is that really doing? And, you know, in this place and this song really gives you that image and that feeling. He literally breaks down to the lyrics in the chorus. It's right before it goes into what I think is one of their best riffs. The main riff, of this song, when James says, send me money, send me green heaven, you will meet making contributions and you'll get a better seat. I think that is one of the most powerful line of lyrics he has ever written, especially that making contributions and you get the better seat. It just tells you right away exactly what you're getting in this song. And I think that's a big thing in this album to drop that in the middle somewhere after all the symbolism. Then you hear this and you're like, you know, you've got a really good point. I really see what he is saying with that. Not to mention musically, it's just one of the better riffs of the album too. I think it's a really good flow. I think this is Lars's best song on the album in terms of his drumming technique as well. You know, he has some really, really good drum feels that give you that nearly offbeat, like unsynchronized feeling that Metallica does very, very well, especially in this song by itself. This is always one of my favorite songs by Metallica as well. His drums are definitely better here than on any song on St. Anger. I'll say that. <laughs> I think I could bang my head on the wall behind me and it's still going to sound a little better. I know. Ooh, right? Shots but, fired. And that's coming from a ginormous Metallica fan. I, I, it's a good album. I listened to it, but just this dude was playing the snare on top of Oscar Grouch's trash can. Yeah. <laughs> there was a great video I watched from my favorite YouTuber, Todd in the Shadows, all about saint anger and i heard the drums i was like oh this is so unpleasant to listen to oh dear but on this song it's great and my favorite moment is when james hetfield screams out lie lie yes. like yeah. yes yes you know or the lyrics when he's yelling the bound to the leper messiah he's he's talking about how these people just give their life to these these fake messiahs and they really believe all giving up their their money and their beliefs. And he's sitting here just saying, what are you, what are you guys doing with this? And then again, going back to just what we know, James Hetfield and his upbringing and up until the early nineties, you, you brought religion around James Hetfield. He, he's about to write a killer track on about, you know, going against it. And I think this song does a really good job of that. And this, this is a great solo in this song. All Kirk Hammett solos are killer, but this one in particular, I think is really, really overlooked when you think it's on an album with battery and Master Puppets, this one is arguably up there with Master Puppets. That's one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. Yeah, th- th- no that bias. was what I was talking about with that falling crescendo was his solo. Like, it's yeah. so, it's mesmerizing is what it is. When And with Metallica, which is really cool, a lot of times that solo is not an outro solo. That'll go back into a third or fourth verse change a little bit. This one, you know, takes you into the end of the song and kind of makes you sit there quietly afterward and think about, yeah. What you just heard. And you talk about creating the stories in the songs, not just with the lyrics, but the instrumentation in itself. Maybe one of Kirk Hammett's best, you know, portrayal of a story through through his guitar. And he does a very, very good job at it. And the way that it, you know, falls into the end of the song goes really well into the next song, which is amazing. I could do 20 episodes on this next <laughs> song. Yeah, but well, before we move on to the next song, I do want to say something about the riff of this track because Speaking of that, someone else claims to have co-written that riff who is not credited, a guy named Dave Mustaine. You called him Mustaine. I always thought it was Mustaine, <laughs> but it's Mustaine, I guess. I believe you. He was a member of Metallica, but he was fired for his excessive drinking and partying. However, some of his compositions were used on the first two albums, and he claimed to have written this one, but the band has said, no, he didn't. And uh, Dave Mustaine is just a really disgruntled 
former employee of Metallica almost 40 years after being fired, and I couldn't imagine holding a grudge for that long, personally, but it's entertaining, I think, actually, that he's still so bitter about it after all these years. He can say he doesn't care all he wants. He clearly does, because his oh, band... Cares. Why wouldn't you? Because... Metallica became the biggest metal band of all time. Megadeth did fine for themselves, but they did not reach the heights of Metallica. So, no, he obviously regrets it. And not really even a disgruntled employee, more like a disgruntled axe. But it's so entertaining to look at. So that just kind of adds to the song for me, you know? A song about a scandalous topic has its own intra-band scandal. I love it. And <laughs> it's funny with that real quick before we move on to the next song that you say that, Charlie, because this album to him just had to had to really hurt him because in a way, a lot of people think Master Puppets was inspired about Dave Mustaine. And when they kicked him out, they were more, but they, they like to do the drinking and partying. But you had Mustaine, who was the closer to the lifestyle of the hair metal bands that they were very intentionally on being the opposite of. You know, then you hear a song like Master Puppets and he could sit there and think like, man, you know, you know, that sounds like me. And then three songs later, you're hearing, I remember that riff. I, you know, I wrote that. And it's no denying as a big Metallica fan, you, you, you can't deny it. There's a lot of influence in Metallica songs after he was kicked out of the band. I mean, he still has all the writing credits on Kill Em All. Kirk Hammett recording that album, but he played majority Mustaine's of what Dave Mustaine rest. had wrote for that album. There's a few of bits and pieces of that on Ride the Lightning as well. But I think when you really look at it, you know, this deep could be a little more of a jealousy thing with him, but we were not in his shoes. I think I would feel the same way if I was kicked out of Metallica. I'll be pretty pissed to see what they were able to do at this point in their career and think, you you know, you could have been. And he's a damn good guitarist too. Better than Kirk Hammett, I disagree personally. But he is a very good guitarist and does deserve, you know, credit where credit is due, just not on Leopard Messiah, in my opinion. That, that is fair. That is quite fair, I think. What I find most interesting about Mustaine is this bitterness has hurt him in many ways because his band has had quite a revolving door for a lineup. Unlike this one, Metallica's been pretty consistent over their 40-year history, actually. Many Even up bands. to recently with Megadeth, they just lost Dave Ellison, who is their co-founder of the band, one of the better metal bases of all time, and he was just kicked out, I think, about a year and a half ago. So kind of go even still to this day, that's still going on with them. And a big part of that comes from Dirty Dave there as the yeah. front man. Maybe Jason Newstead can join Megadeth now. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, that's a different... <laughs> <laughs> we, need a, we need an episode for that one by itself, yeah. too. I could go on all day, but great basis. About I Newstead? Could on, I could go on all day about Newstead. <laughs> I know he's not your Cliff Burton, but... <laughs> Nobody, nobody's nobody Cliff is. Burton. And this next song proves why nobody yeah, is. Yes. Yeah, perfect segue to that. Yes, Orion. This is the track seven, a uh, important track for Mr. Corey here. And uh, you know it. This is our second instrument. Well, not really our second instrumental. There were a few on um, Book of Dreams by the Steve Miller band, but this is our second, I guess, long metal instrumental that we've discussed on this podcast, Orion, um, after a YYZ from Moving Pictures. So you guys probably have more to say about this song than I do, so I'm going to let you guys take over this one. I mean, moving forward musicality-wise, we're looking at Burton's, man, uh, tears in my eyes, uh, yeah. literally, uh, his swan song. Yeah. Um, his, his, 
his opus. And he didn't even realize, I mean, he realized he had a banger here. This, this is Bass City for me, is, is, is my first note. It's such a beautiful, beautiful piece. And it's his piece. I mean, at that four minute when it breaks away <sighs> and then builds up slowly, like slowly but surely bringing the whole song with it. It's, it, it's an amazing piece. And what a great instrumental piece to put on this album. I'll tell you one, uh, my last thing with this one, it doesn't stop. It doesn't take away from the album. It doesn't no. stop the album. It doesn't stop uh, your listening experience at all. And for an instrumental that speaks volumes, you know? Yeah, th this song is just absolutely incredible. You know, I'd say this is my favorite Metallica song of all time, but I almost put it in its own category with being the, you know, the instrumental and all sparsely. It's just so far beyond anything else you will ever hear coming out of a bass guitar. It's just simply incredible. Not to mention he's playing this on a four string as well. Yeah, man. I mean, he comes in, you know, talking about how the way Leopard Messiah ends quietly. Then this song, if your volume's low enough in your car listening to this, you're not even going to realize the song has started. Heard. You saw you hear Lars coming in on that constant eighth note beat on the hi-hat with the churning bass coming in. It's just absolutely beautiful. This song is the perfect embodiment of Cliff. And I think the saddest part about it is how well it does really embody the life of cliff burton you know he wrote this song really is majority of it is all bass but absolutely one of the best guitar solos in metallica history was at the end of this song and it was played on the bass guitar it's right. played all the way down at the bottom fret 20 and and higher on a bass guitar you know which that's just completely out of this world in itself but then to do it as well as he did and musically as he did um just a little backstory on cliff burton he learned how to play the bass guitar and bass lessons by learning classical music. And a lot of people will say metal music is classical music with electricity. And this song is the one of the best ways to, you know, really show that that I've been playing the bass guitar now, I think three, four years. This song is the reason why. And then this song is the reason why I fell in love with Metallica wholeheartedly and Cliff Burton himself. And going back to how sad it is that it's the embodiment of it, he never ever got to play this song fully through live as yes. we said he died in this tour in september the only time this song's ever been played in full which it is a longer song was in um what i say it was in 2006 when they tore this album on its anniversary and played the album in entirety no now shit. you had rob Trujillo playing the bass for that i think he can do cliff burton justice big thing with this song is they knew you you can't just go out and play cliff burton's orion you 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 simply cannot. It's just not right. It'll never be the same. But with Rob, he I've seen the video of this show. He, he did very well. Was it what Cliff Burton could have done with it? Absolutely not. But another right. really cool thing with this song is at Cliff's funeral, bit of that melodic part in the middle where he is just showing that the bass guitar is piece of his body, really, was played at his funeral. And James Hetfield got an excerpt of the sheet music notes tattooed on him. And that was the part that was played at his funeral. And that's just wow. to show how important this song is to the life of Cliff Burton. It's just absolutely incredible. This song is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, hands down, I don't even have to question that. You know, it's it's just so beautifully written, so well done. He harmonizes with Kirk Hammett and some of those solos so, so well. Because he truly was a master guitarist on the bass guitar. And this song shows that better than any song that he has ever written. Well said, yeah. well said. Yeah, I can't really uh, follow that one, honestly. What I will say, though, is I do think you can definitely tell that classical training is so present in this song. And uh, 
honestly, the only other musician of this era who was capable of doing such complex things musically, I believe, is Prince. Yeah. It is really a bittersweet tune, and it is sad that Cliff Burton didn't get to continue to be in Metallica. He should obviously still be with us today. It's a shame that we didn't really get to see what more he could have done, but he left us with a really neat song, I think. Kind of hard for me to analyze it since I'm so much more into analyzing lyrics than the musical elements. Like That's why I have you guys here for you're better at analyzing the actual music than I am. But I think, I'm, I, think I do OK with the lyrics, but that makes it harder for me to comment on this song. But I do think it's really well done and uh, it's a good penultimate track for the album. That is for sure. Yes, sir. Yeah. As if you've ever listened to Cliff Burton, you know, he was a master with his pedals as well, creating just these different sounds by playing on the same spots on the bass guitar. This song really goes with that. And obviously the song's called Orion. Without lyrics, it's harder to say, you know, the what the song is supposed to be about. But I think it's pretty easy to say, you know, you can kind of sit in your backyard at night, look up at the stars and you, you hear some of this bass ringing inside your head. You know, and I think Cliff did a really, really good job of portraying a story through the bass guitar, which again, I think is even harder than doing it on any other instrument because there's just less strings, less you can do on it. Unless, unless you're Cliff Burton, of course. And then at that point, the bass guitar is, you know, part of his body. And this, this song is just simply incredible with that. He, he plays so many different styles throughout the song, but bleeds them together melodically so well. You, you have him at the beginning, just shredding some eighth notes underneath of Kirk that just match that, drums so well and then you got him hitting the pedal going all the way down to that 14th fret that i hear that and i literally just think a spaceship like flying through the space being flown by cliff burton himself you know (laughs) goes into that that middle part where he is just manipulating the pentonic scale so well to go into just really jumping around on that bass guitar he's got some of the fastest fingers like you'll ever hear a bass guitars have but he has some of the most accurate fingers too and that part really shows how good he was at hitting those notes cleanly making the bass guitar sound like it could be a lead instrument for one of the first times in really in rock history bass guitar and rock's really infamous for having that boring eighth note undertone kind of thing cliff burton said you know what screw that i'm not doing that kind of thing then it goes back into one of those faster parts to go to the outro of the song, just brings it all together, you know, so well. And like I said, that guitar solo towards the end, that's that's bass guitar. It took yeah. a lot of people a long time to realize that was not Kirk Hammett. And it was not. That was Cliff Burton on the four-string Rickenbacker. As James Heffield used to call it, his four-string mf when he would introduce Cliff up on stage before he would play Anesthesia, Pulling Teeth, you know. With, with Orion, it just shows the, the musical powers that Cliff Burton had that it would never, ever be matched. And there's a reason why it doesn't get played. And I'm fine with that. I'd love to hear it live if I could go in a time machine and go back to before September 27th, 86. But other than that, you know, leave it as it is, because it's Cliff Burton's symbol. This song is it, re- it really song. is. Yeah, yeah. It, it's his story of this album of stories. You know, it's his story and he told it. Told it very well. This song, I would die for this song. Like I said, reason I picked wow. up a bass guitar. It's just there you go. incredible. There you go. Well, um, I think it's a little hard to go on from Orion, but there is one more song on the album, believe it or not. It is Damage Inc. 
This is the last song on the album. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's a come down from Orion. There's some people who like this song. It's actually what the tour for the album is known as, the Damage yep. Inc. tour. This is my least favorite on the album. I think this is just, I don't think, it's not a song, it's a rant, and all of these songs are rants. Right. But they have more specific points. This one, I'm not getting the specific point. This is just a rant to me, and after all these epic songs with these uh, really big points, I don't get it. This one's not for me, I'm afraid. I've listened to it several times. I've tried. This one just doesn't do it for me, I'm afraid. See, th- this song's really interesting because we we can go back and talk about the beginning of Battery. This song, Damage Inc., really starts in the same way. It's got that slow, soft acoustic tune coming in, and then it just, that rift just kicks you right in the butt right away. And then you, we talked about some of these songs, the symbolism's really strong. This song has the strongest symbolism of all the eight. So from on the surface, it's really hard to know what James is trying to portray with this song. Again, we know it all goes back to manipulation. This is kind of some higher power, higher structure, whether it be a government, some kind of secret service or something kind of manipulating its people. As you can say, it's the Damage Incorporated. It's a a group of people really manipulating a much larger group of people and doing it pretty successfully in terms of how well, you know, people can be controlled. And that this song does do a good job with that part of me i've always thought the only time that these songs could be switched on this album is damage inc and orion being switched i think the instrumental going to the end would have would have been a little better but this song i think is is pretty killer it's it's a really fast another fast down pick james hetfield song with great riffs in it that once it's over and it ends pretty abruptly too um you're just like wow and an interesting note with this, I don't know if you ever listened to Charlie, because I've talked to you about them, My Chemical Romance. I know One who of, they are. I know their hits, their, I guess you yeah. could say. <laughs> so their best album, Black Parade, is an album everyone knows. Everyone knows the Welcome to the Black Parade song. Now, there is a song on that album called This Is How or How I Disappear, something like that. But in Damage Inc., you hear this guitar riff right before the guitar solo, and you hear... And then James Hetfield yell, go. Goes right into the solo. Go check out the song by My Chemical Romance. And you hear Gerard Way right on a little guitar. And then you hear him just yell, go. And goes into a solo. And you cannot sit here and tell me that that inspiration did not come from the way that it kicks into that guitar solo in Damage Inc. Because it is done identically. And I think that's a really cool thing to see how years later, an album like this could influence a band that is similar in genre and style, but not quite. But the way, it, you know, it had that influence on that, I always thought was really cool. The first time I heard that, I was like, wait a second. I've heard that before. Re- Remember, it was from Damn and Jake. I'm like, wow, that's the exact same thing. That's actually really, really cool. That, um, that's such a cool take and, and a cool inspiration i love to see that that generational inspiration um but we could say the same thing for the boys on this one because you know we've got the reverse chords from box come sweet death and start in in the start of this so uh uh, you know this uh, i'm gonna use it twice but this continuum of uh inspiration 
also leads or lends itself to what I love about this song and where it is on this album. Because it ends the album literally leaving me like salivating for more. But then also with its regard to the continuum, like you said, with it being so similar to Battery, this album is, in my opinion, set up for this gosh darn continuous flipping that right. never really needs to stop because right the way this album ends back like, to battery boom. oh most definitely most definitely i think this is a super cool closer i can see where you're going on with the orion but i'm gonna say with that continuum in mind i think this is the perfect closer for this album so uh, speaking of the inspiration based on this my chemical romance are you telling me that damaging basically greatly influenced emo music <laughs> maybe not emo music but at least that that little excerpt in that my chemical romance song because when you listen to them it's nearly identical even the phrasing of that little guitar churn into the go into a solo the phrasing of it is identical as well and if you're a musician you, you talk about phrasing you you can't manipulate phrasing it's it's a natural phenomenon in music and it's one of the most important things in creating music when you hear something like that you know, and of course, coming from a band like Metallica, as popular as they were in the early 2000s when the Black Parade album was written and recorded, you know, it definitely makes sense. And this is a band full of big, they were heavy metal fans. You know, you listen to MCR, you, you can hear that. Yeah. And so I think that was just always a really cool thing. Now, I could be completely wrong, but Charlie, you know me, I hardly am. So I right. think, you know, <laughs> I think that definitely comes from that. I think that's a really cool thing because it's, really is out of the eight it might be the most overlooked track on the album and still that the most overlooked track on this album gets inspiration like that really yeah. goes to show you know the importance of this album on other musicians it's a great yeah. point well i hate to say it doesn't help my opinion of the song because i am not an emo kid i did not have an emo <laughs> phase that is definitely not my scene oh it's so. not a phase mom it's life <laughs> oh not part of my life everybody says oh middle school emo not me so <laughs> yeah that uh okay that doesn't help my opinion of the song i'm afraid but <laughs> sorry to say but um yeah, but, but what like Corey said it, it it's a really good way to end the album the way it starts that same way as battery you know it's almost like you think about running a lap if yep. this this album is running around a track you know you're starting you're starting slow and then it's really kicking up and you, you get back around to that track, the end of the track to see where you started from as this song ends. And like he said, you just it's got you going so hard. You just want to keep it going again. You know, and they do a really good think really good job. But then it's another song when it ends. You're just like, wow. And the fact with it being the last song of the album, you really sit there and you think that was the best 54 minutes I have ever spent in my entire life. And I do it at least once a day. In a seven-day week, I listen to this album straight through at least four to five times. And every time I hear the end of this wow. song, I think the same thing. I think, wow, they just did that. They really just did that to us. And again, coming back to when this album was made, no one had the balls to do that, let alone the equipment or the good enough studios or money to do that or the talent to be able to do that. Metallica was able to catch fire with all three of those factors. That's why this album, it's just it's just yeah. synonymous with music and, and metal in general and this the way Damage ends, I think, does a good job of showing what the album Master Puppets is about. You know, that last little riff with that that drum kick to end that song, it gets your heart pumping and then you like get blue balled from it. You know, you want more, but that's it. <laughs> you start it right back over. That's why I'm so glad we got to do this album, because musically, 
top notch. They set out on a mission to make it top notch. They showed exactly what they could do. And, uh, and it was a stepping stone, a huge stepping stone on them into blossoming into the powerhouse that Metallica is and has been. I think I begged Charlie for weeks to do this album. Said, let me on this there show you go, to do this Thank album. You. Thank you. And then, You've of course, once the, once the Stranger Things happen, I'm like, Charlie, this is the perfect time for that. Like, we yeah, we got to do it. And I love talking about Metallica. I talk Charlie's ear off about them all. The, I, I like he's learned a lot of Metallica. You know, just listen to me blabber on about it. So you put me on here with this yeah. fantastic time to me. Well, you listen to me talk about Madonna, so it's even. There you go. <laughs> like I said, I love her. I love her in a league of their own. So I'll I'll, I'll listen about her all day long. All righty. Yeah. Well, uh, with that being said, we are now at the point where we give our leather grades for the album. I'll let Justin start with this. Um, what's better than A plus? <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing this is the that's the first a plus that's been given out here it is indeed it is indeed charlie where you at on this one i'm gonna go b plus i like that i like and to that. me that says something coming from you charlie that yeah. says a lot because you know, that really does this is not my go-to genre at all but I do definitely appreciate the way that these songs were written and uh, just the themes that they take on in the songs. I think this is a really well-structured album and I just have to admire it for that, even if it is a bit out of my comfort zone. And uh, really the only thing that stopped it from being an A for me was honestly damaging. I hate to say it, but sorry. (laughs) Corey, what's your grade? I'm I'm coming in at A on this. Um, this is the structurally sound killer, and the musicality cannot be beat. I'll tell you the honest to God's truth. The only reason it doesn't get an A plus is because I can't give an A plus yet. <laughs> We're on twelve now. I'm just kidding you. It, it, it gets a solid, solid A for me. A plus is perfect in my book, and this is coming darn close. This yeah. is coming darn close. The eighties, man, we're getting towards the end of our eighties month and we've had so much perfection coming through, man. I'm glad we got to do this album. Oh, so am I. Before we move on, favorite song on the album from both of you. I'd like to hear it. I, w- I will say Orion. I knew you, know, you were going to say l- Orion. Let me say this. I'll say Orion because that's definitely my favorite, but let me put it in terms of when we have lyrics in there too, because James Hatfield's lyrics are huge. I got to say welcome home. I'm there. Welcome home. Sanitarium is my jammy piece, man. Yep. Uh, definitely my favorite album on this track for so many reasons, but just musicality alone. Sanitarium. Welcome home. Yep. Gotta love it. Mine's Leper Messiah. Yeah. I like, nice. I like that nice. too. Oh, it's perfect. It's the most 80s song here, which I love. I love Heard. what they're taking on because what assholes those guys were. Come on, especially Jim Baker. Yeah. I read about him. I was just like, yuck, 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 yuck. And it's inspired by a, one of David Bowie's best songs, which is oh. awesome. And it has the Bustain scandal involved with it. So, yes, Leper Messiah is my favorite song on the album. I think it's wonderful. And I'm really glad that I know it exists now. I'm so happy it's around. Just makes my life better to know Leper Messiah is on this earth. Because I agree. Oh, I love it. (laughs) But that does it for Master of Puppets. And as we said, sadly, we're wrapping up the 80s. I'm not too thrilled about it. But for next week, we have one more album we'll be doing. It's a good one that Corey picked. It's one I could have picked, too. So very exciting. We'll be 
partying like it's 1999 with Prince, and we'll be diving into that album. I can't wait to do that one. But uh, thank you, Justin, for joining us to discuss Metallica. We'll have to do it again, especially if we're going to talk about Jason Newstead. That sounds like fun. Oh, yeah, it was definitely a pleasure. Like I like I was saying for weeks, Charlie, I want to definitely get on here and talk about Metallica. It was a great time. I get to talk about my favorite band, you know, that's always yes. a good time. I get to talk about with some other people who know their music, know what they're talking about. You know, it's definitely, definitely a good time. I yes, appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I, I can't say it enough. You, you brought a liveliness to this and some knowledge pearls to us as well. Um, yeah. You used the word blathering, but not at all. Um, you really uh, defined Metallica for us this evening. And, and thank you so much. Yeah. Long live Metallica, baby. There yeah. you go. I walked into this one as blind as Corey did walking into the Go Go's. So. <laughs> that, hey, you know what? There you go. There you go. There so, you go. no, I'm glad you were here to definitely help us. And it helps us with consistency, too, because our last two episodes lasted over an hour as well. So, there you go. There but you go. Uh, with that being said, I'm sure next week's will too. But while you're waiting for us to dive into the purple one, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast and follow us wherever you're listening, whether it be Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Audible. We're on all of them. And in the meantime, just keep on shredding if you do so just like the master of puppets would want you to. So, adios, amigos. Peace! Deuces.